happy Friday. If it's not Friday for you when you're listening to this, happy day, happy, happy, happy. Lately, I've been super happy. Um, I don't know, I just feel good, even though I'm really tired, not going to even lie. I have a lot of work that I'm doing all the time, every day, all day, no sleep. You guys know that TikTok sound when it's like, club, another club. I don't think it's club. I don't know, it's Lady Gaga saying it. Anyways, I hope you guys can take away some great life lessons from this episode today. Today, I am diving into the book, The Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson, because I read this book and I love this book and I was so invested in this book, fam. She wants everything, fam. I took this book, I read it within three weeks, and it was so easy to get into. If you can actually read the book, I really highly encourage you to. Um, However, I know that, you know, not everybody has the time on their hands to do so, so here I am. Once again, okay, sorry, I know this is not, I feel like a singer when I am doing my podcast because I'm always like holding my mic, I just like holding it in my hand, it's satisfying, I don't know, anyways, we shall start off on chapter five, okay, chapter five had me losing it, in a very good way, kind of, um, this this chapter is called The Choice, and we make choices on a daily basis from what we eat or what we don't want to eat to what we wear to if we're going to go to school or not that day or if we're going to show up to work or not that day. We always, always have a choice. I'm pretty sure I did this episode on choosing like a long time ago when I first started this podcast, but The Choice is such an interesting topic and I'm going to read you a story from this book because it's interesting. Listen, the choice. William James had problems, really bad problems. Although born into a wealthy and prominent family from birth, James suffered life-threatening health issues, an eye problem that left him temporarily blinded as a child a terrible stomach condition that caused excessive vomiting and forced him to adopt obscure and highly sensitive diet. Trouble with his hearing, back spasms so bad that at days at a time he couldn't sit or stand. Due to his health problems, James spent most of his time at home. He didn't have friends, he wasn't particularly good at school, instead he passed the days painting. That was the only thing he liked and the only thing he felt particularly good at. Unfortunately, nobody else thought that he was good. When he grew into adulthood, nobody bought his work, and the years dragged on. His father, a wealthy businessman, began ridiculing him for his laziness and lack of talent. Meanwhile, his younger brother, Henry James, went on to become a world-renowned novelist. His sister, Alice James, made a good living as a writer as well. William was the oddball of the family, the black sheep. In desperate attempt to salvage the young man's future, James's father used his connections to get him admitted into Harvard Medical School. It was his last chance, his father told him. If he screwed this up, there was no hope for him. But James never felt at home or peace at Harvard. Medicine never appealed to him. He spent his whole time feeling like a fake and a fraud. After all, if he couldn't come overcome his own problems, how could he ever have hoped to have the energy to help others with theirs. After touring a psychiatric facility one day, James mused in his diary that he felt he had more in common with the patients than the doctors. A few years went by, and again to his father's disappointment, James dropped out of medical school. But rather than the deal, rather than deal with the brunt of his father's wrath, he decided to get away. He signed up to join an expedition to the Amazon rainforest. This was the 1860s, so transcontinental travel was difficult and dangerous. And he explains this video game that he plays as a kid, but I personally don't know what the video game is. It's called Oregon Trail. Then he continues and says, Anyways, James made it all the way to the Amazon, where the rail adventure was 
to begin. Surprisingly, his fragile health held up the whole way, but once he finally made it on the first day of his expedition, he promptly contracted smallpox and nearly died in the jungle. Then his back spasms returned, painful to the point of making James unable to walk. By this time, he was immense emaciated and starved is that how you say it i don't know and starved from the smallpox immobilized by his bad back and left alone in the middle of south america with no clear way to get home a journey that would take months and likely kill him anyway but somehow he eventually made it back to new england where he was greeted by an even more disappointed father by this point the young man wasn't so young anymore Nearly 30 years old, still unemployed, a failure at everything he had attempted. With a body that routinely, routinely, routinely betrayed him and wasn't likely to ever get better. Despite all the advantages and opportunities he's been given in life, everything had fallen apart. The only constants in his life seemed to be suffering and disappointment. James fell into deep depression and began making plans to take his own life. But one night, while reading lectures by philosopher Charles Pierce, James decided to conduct a little experiment. In his diary, he wrote that he would spend one year believing that he was 100% responsible for everything that had occurred in his life, no matter what. During this period, he would do everything in his power to change his circumstances, no matter the likelihood of failure. If nothing improved in that year, then it would be apparent that he was truly powerless to the circumstances around him and that he would take his own life. The punchline? William James went on to become the father of American psychology. His work has been translated into bazillion languages and he's regarded as one of the most influential intellectual philosophers slash psychologists of his generation. He would go on to teach at Harvard and would much tour of the world bleh, bleh, and would tour much of the United States and Europe giving lectures. He would marry and have five children, of one of whom, Henry, would become a famous biographer and win a Pulitzer Prize. James would later refer to his little experiment as his quote unquote rebirth and would credit it with everything that he later accomplished in his life. There is a simple realization from which all personal improvement and growth emerges. This is the realization that we individually are responsible for everything in our lives, no matter the external circumstances. Okay, guys. Could you see why I was, my jaw was on the book or on the floor when reading this chapter? It's tough. It's a really hard pill to swallow because I think when we try to think about choices and our circumstances, it can be a very much of a blame game. Well, I'm mad because my teacher didn't give me this or I'm sad because my boyfriend makes me feel this way or and but the list goes on and on and on and trust me i i am one of these people i feel the needs many many times in my life that you know i wouldn't be this angry if this person didn't do this to me this morning or i wouldn't feel so bad about, my, about myself if you know i i didn't go i i if i didn't go out last night but i i was pressured into going out or I, I don't know, I can't think of another example, but it just, the list can seriously go on, and I think a big, a big awakening that I had with this was that choices lead into responsibility, and granted, everything that has happened to me in my life, I don't believe is 100% fair, and we hear this all the time, life isn't fair, but I have the choice to either take that bad experience in my life and make it for the better or sit in it and sulk in it and be sad. And who wants to do that? No one, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be sad. Nobody wants to dwell on something for 20 years and then realize 20 years later that maybe we should have just taken something good out of it. 
And I'll give you an example. Um, as we all know, I was a little wild teenager um, back then. To be honest, I wasn't that bad. But, you know, I def- definitely had my moments. And we all know that. This is partially why I started this podcast, actually. And this is a perfect example of how I turned something not so good in my life, something a little negative, into something positive. I chose to take the... I chose to bear the responsibility of me acting out as a hormonal, interesting teenager into something positive. I think if I didn't have, you know, the peer pressure of my friends or, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't have certain things in my teenage years, I wouldn't be where I am now. And whether that sounds corny or not, I think it's 100% true. I'm really glad that I kind of got that wild phase out of me because now I'm able to sit here and literally make hundreds of episodes on the lessons that I've learned as such a young woman. I mean, I'm only 19, and sometimes even though I feel 45, I know that I am still so young and I still have so much to learn. But that key point, that turnaround, or as James would refer to it as, as his rebirth, is so important. I think a lot of the times I see my friends or even I like stuck kind of in the past and you're stuck on how that guy treated you or you're stuck on, you know, what happened between your parents or, you know, this trauma that you endured. And I'm not saying that it it wasn't bad. I'm not saying that, you know, it wasn't traumatizing, whatever it may be for you. I just think that there is a way to handle that situation when something doesn't go your way and when something's kind of a depressing era for you in your life it's really important to kind of learn how to pick up and choose to act in a more not necessarily positive way but a way that will better your life because the last thing that you want to do is be in the blame game and blame your brother blame your mom Blame your dad, you know, for all these crappy situations that have happened to you, never taking the responsibility and wasting your whole life. I think that I also have a great example. I'm pretty sure most people know this, but, you know, I didn't grow up with a father. I never had a father figure in my life. Um, My mom was a single mom for so many years, and I will never stop talking about this because I feel like this is a huge part of my life. And granted, now that I have an amazing stepdad, that's not the point. Um, My mom had a choice. She was left with two children to bear, (laughs) to take care of, to feed, and... um, First of all, it's emotionally very draining, physically a lot of work, and also financially very, very hard to support three people, two growing children, and herself, plus a house, you know, all that good stuff that goes into parenting. And I think she had a choice. I think she had a choice of either, one, giving up as a mom and, you know, letting go of our kids, or two, taking that awful situation that her husband left her into a way of making a great story and that's what she did you know she was like okay well shoot I have a lot of mouths to feed and I kind of need to make a living not kind of I need to make a living failure is not an option here and so she took that hard time in her life and I think she created something really great out of it I'm not saying that I'm the best child in the world but I think my mom is a prime example of making the choice and committing to the decision that she was going to raise her kids and that she was going to work. And yeah, it might take some sacrifice with you know her friend's social life and her dating life and finding the next Mr. Right or even missing time out on her kids because she physically could not work all the time and climb in her career the way that she did if she was just a stay-at-home mom or if she just worked part-time. And so choices do come with sacrifices, but it's, it's so important to understand the choices that you're making. And I've said this before because my mom says it to me all the time, every action has a reaction. So if we are choosing 
to, you know, sacrifice a night out because we're working on something better for our future, that that's the reaction of our action. We are choosing to stay in and hustle and not go out because we know that this is what we want. It's the choice that you make. And it's how much you commit to that choice. Another great point that I learned from this book was something called the self-awareness onion. He has a whole chapter on this. And I found this really um, valuable. I didn't really know how to explain what he perfectly explained here. Um, and emotions are very, very hard. Being self-aware is also a very difficult task. When we're growing up, I think a lot of us probably suppress a lot of our emotions. A lot of the times, you know, your parents or your teachers tell you, don't talk that way, don't speak that way, don't say this, don't say that. Why do you feel that way? You shouldn't feel that way. And I think that's really unfair a lot of the times now looking back on it. And the self-awareness question or the self-awareness onion he explains it as an onion has multiple layers, a gazillion later layers that you're constantly needing to peel back. And we are the onion in this case. Okay, when you say it out loud, that kind of sounds weird, but we are the onion and we have a bazillion memories, um, knowledge, pieces of knowledge, emotions, feelings, all that junk in us and sometimes it's really really hard to peel back the layers of the onion I think a lot of the times you think being self-aware means well yeah I'm aware that you know this situation happened to me and like who was involved with it and I blame Sally and I blame Sarah because it's their fault that they did this to me it's kind of like looping back to the choice but he points out something super interesting. Mr. Manson says, most self-help gurus ignore this deeper level of self-awareness. They take people who are miserable because they want to be rich, and then they give them all the sorts of advice on how to make more money, all while ignoring the important value-based questions. Why? Why do they feel such need to be rich in the first place? How are they choosing to measure success and failure for themselves? Is it not perhaps some particular value that's the root of their unhappiness and not the fact that they don't drive a Bentley yet? Much of the advice out there operates on a shallow level of simply trying to make people feel good in the short term, while the real long-term problems never get solved. And that, my friends, was an eye-opener. I think a lot of the times we either go on TikTok or you read an article or you read another book or, you know, you just see something on YouTube. It's like, oh, this is why you're unhappy or this is why you're not satisfied. And while I think there's a lot of things that go into this, personally, I'm religious and I believe in God. So I think that God for me really does help a lot. But I think what Manson is trying to get at here is when you're peeling back these self-awareness onion the self-awareness onion, the layers of it, you're probably going to feel really uncomfortable and you're going to feel weird because you're talking about things that you haven't talked about in a very long time. And then you're probably going to start crying at inappropriate times, as he says in the book, because you're starting to kind of go back in time and fix all these emotional issues that you're having. And a lot of that comes from, you know, the whole why question, but how am I choosing to measure my worth, my time? Why, who am I valuing in this lifetime? Why do I value that person? Why do I value myself? What do I want to be measured as? My value as a person, by what standard am I judging myself and everyone around me? At the end of the day, what do you, you, value as a human being and it really comes down to that when you're peeling back these layers if you're sad because you know you feel like you can't do well in school and you know it's just really hard I think that you probably value education a lot because clearly you care about enough about it 
to be upset about it? Or is it that you value your parents' validation because they're forcing you to go to school and you don't want to go to school? And a really another big part of this theory is you will see a lot of people take these questions and go back to the blame game. Instead of bearing the responsibility of their feelings, they consider a good quote-unquote self-reflection by blaming other people rather than actually trying to self-realize and self-reflect. You're wrong about everything, but so am I. Honestly, guys, this book had me kind of losing my marbles on this one because he kind of just goes through everything about life in a very concise and condensed way where it's a lot of information being thrown at you, which I appreciate, but it's a little overstimulating at first. And this chapter, You're Wrong About Everything But So Am I, <laughs> really had me messed up in the head. When we think about growth and like, you know, just growing mentally or physically, I think we always try to be right more and more and more. As the days go on, you think about how right you should be next time and how this time you were wrong, but next time you'll be right. And something he says on this page really stood out to me. He says, growth is an endlessly iterative process. When we learn something new, we don't go from wrong to right. Rather, we go from wrong to slightly less wrong. And when we learn something additional, we go from slightly less wrong to slightly less wrong than that, and then to even less wrong than that, and so on. We are always in the process of approaching truth and perfection without actually ever reaching the truth or perfection. You know that saying? It reminded me of that saying, um, nobody's ever perfect. I think that's what he's trying to get at here is, <coughs> excuse me, I just choked on my air on saliva. Even people who we look up to like in the media or even in your everyday life, you're always like, oh, she's so perfect or he's so perfect. And the truth is we all are not perfect and we hear it all the time. It's so repetitive in our lives. It's so corny, but there is no perfection. Like there is just isn't. And the thing is, is that he actually says something that I really agree with in this book is he kind of just basically says it as it is. And I think I've said this before, but we all kind of don't know what we're doing. Nobody really gives you, you know, a straight manual guide on how to live life and how to do it right. Because the way that we learn and the way that we grow is through experiences. And through those experiences, whether they're good or bad, you always learn from them. And so I used to really hate being wrong. I felt like I needed to be Miss Know-It-All. I feel like I needed to know every single fact and every single book from every single article. I feel like even if I didn't know the name of the song and my friend did, somehow it would make me inferior. Which now, when I think about it and say it out loud, it just sounds stupid. Um, and anything that I wasn't right about, I felt like I wasn't pushing myself in the right direction or I wasn't motivated enough or I wasn't doing it right and it just made me feel so um, not only afraid of rejection but afraid of failure and failure isn't the cutest and neither is rejection but we both need, we all need those things to be able to grow and so I needed to let go of such certainties in life. To be honest, Nobody knows for sure where our life events will end up leading us into what new great adventure or challenge. And I think Mark here made me feel better about not knowing the future and what is ahead of me because we all just don't know what's going to happen. No one knows the answers to anything. And nobody's perfect in that way or in any way. And so I am now taking on a challenge to let go of my certainties. That goes for someone I see on the streets, and I can't be certain for anything 
about their lives because I know nothing about them and I can't be certain about what next steps for my life are going to be and nobody nobody is just going to know that besides in my opinion God I'm also going to read this page because I feel like this is a really important aspect to what he's trying to convey in the story He says, it's easier to sit in a painful certainty that nobody would find you attractive, that nobody appreciates your talents, than to actually test those beliefs and find out for sure. Beliefs of some sort, that I'm not attractive enough, why bother? Or that my bass is an asshole, so why bother? Bass, I meant boss, sorry. So why bother? Are designed to give us moderate comfort now by mortgaging greater happiness and success later on. They're long, terrible long-term strategies, yet we cling on to them because we assume that we're right, because we assume we already know what's supposed to happen. In other words, we assume we know how the story ends. Certainty is the enemy of growth. Nothing is for certain until it's already happened, and even then, it's still debatable. That's why accepting an inevitable perfection, imperfections of our values is necessary for any growth to take place. Didn't that kind of open your eyes? Nothing is certain. Nobody is perfect. And even when you are certain, it's debatable, which I know we can probably go back and forth about this, and it kind of feels like philosophy, but we're not going to do that. The main message here that I took away from it was kind of like judging we cannot judge someone 100% based off just our knowledge and being certain about everything in our lives can actually just cost us a lot of pain and hurt when I first opened my first e-commerce store on my gap year I was first certain like I was so far my head was so far up my ass I thought that you know my mom is going to be so proud of me I'm going to make seven figures plus with this e-commerce store and guess what guys I made like nothing I think I spent a few hundred dollars building it and you know running some ads and stuff and I made just enough to get that money back and that was about four months of my life that I was kind of hoping and clinging on to this because I was for certain that this was going to make me the shit, that this was going to make me that next young millionaire. And little did I know that I was naive and I still have a lot to learn about business and a lot to learn about a lot of things in that aspect. But certainty for me in that level only costed me wasted time, efforts, and money. Remember when I told you guys in another episode what you believe is going to be your like physical reality? Well, Mr. Manson seems to be agreeing with me because listen to what he has to say. Our brains are... Blah, blah. Our brains are meaning machines. We understand as meaning is generated by the associations our brain makes between two or more experiences. We press a button, then we see a light go on. We assume the button caused the light to go on. This, at its core, is the basis of meaning. Button, light, light, button. We see a chair. We note that it's gray. Our brain then draws the association between the color gray and the object chair and forms its meaning. The chair is gray. Our minds are constantly worrying, generating more and more association to help us understand and control the environment around us. Everything about our experiences, both external and internal, generates new associations and connections with our minds. Everything from the words on this page to the grammatical concepts you use to decipher to them, to the 30 thoughts your mind wanders into when writing becomes boring or repetitive. Each of these thoughts, impulses, perception is composed of thousands upon thousands of neural connections, firing in conjunction, alighting your mind in a blaze of knowledge and understanding. But there are two problems. First, the brain is imperfect. We mistake things we see and hear. We forget things or misinterpret things quite easily. Second, we create meaning for ourselves. Our brains are designed to hold on to that meaning. 
We are biased towards the meaning our mind has made, and we don't want to let any of it go. Even if we see evidence that contradicts the meaning we created, we often ignore it and keep on believing. This pertains to, I think, a lot of relationships that we have in our lives. I've seen a lot of my friends get in red flag relationships or even just people around me. Well, I guess those people are my friends. Um, or even, like, I've been a part of friendships where I know it's not healthy. I know it's probably toxic. I know that, you know, this is not what a friendship should feel like. And yet, I keep letting it happen and grow. Well, not necessarily grow in a good way, but have it continue on. Because I want to believe that I can make this work. And I want to believe that I can change this person. When in reality, I can't. We are not meant to change people. We are not meant to have everything go our way 24-7 and have every relationship be perfect. What he says here in the second point, when we create meaning for ourselves, our brains are designed to hold on to that meaning. I remember being in a specific friendship where it was clearly just not the greatest. I think everybody from an outside standpoint could probably see that, but I think I again, was holding on to some sentimental value. I was holding on to the fantasy and the not the actual reality of what the situation is. And I think this goes for a lot of romantic relationships as well as you. It's really easy to take a red flag and turn it into a green because of the meaning that you have created within yourself and within your little brain of yours. When we allow ourselves to kind of be delusional in not the best way and create that outside meaning or belief, no matter what, no matter who tells you how bad that person is for you, no matter how you know awful that person treats you, you're going to hold on to that meaning unless you change the value of the meaning for yourself, unless you change the definition of the meaning, and unless you change the way you perceive this relationship, you will always hold on to it. And this also goes for career and anything else in your life. If you feel like, if you believe, I've said this before, your brain is like a computer. If you believe that you are only destined to be making a certain amount of income, throughout your whole life, that's the only amount of income you're going to make your whole entire life. If you truly believe that, you know, you're able to do more and bring more onto your plate and make more money and build more connections and network more, then that's what's going to happen because you believe it so strongly that you will do anything in your power to get there. So, the unfortunate thing about our lives and brains, as Mr. Manson says here, is he says, the result of all this, the most of our beliefs are wrong. Or to be more exact, all beliefs are wrong. Some are just less wrong than others. The human mind is a jumble of inaccuracy. And while this makes us uncomfortable, it's an incredibly important concept to accept. Okay, I know that this book really probably has you like mind fried and you probably are guessing and second-guessing a lot of the things. That's not the point here. I think that's contradicting what he's trying to teach us. What I took away from this section of the book was that sometimes the things that we believe in and, you know, the people that we believe in can be wrong. And it might be a really hard fact to accept, but I think it's very true, especially when I look back on my own life and see a lot of the things that I thought were to be true which didn't turn out to be true. And it's this whole kind of, I mean, you can go back and forth all the time. It kind of almost feels like philosophy. But it's something to think about. And this kind of also ties back to what we were saying about being certain about everything. Sometimes it's okay to be uncertain and have a looser plan um, instead of always trying to predict the future and instead of always trying to be so right about everything that comes across in your life. Mark also points out a fact that I really like. He says, failure is the way forward. And I think we hear this a lot from a lot of different internet celebrities or A-listers. 
or at least I hear it a lot. I hear it a lot on other podcasts, a lot of other successful people who, you know, rake in seven figures and more. Whether you base your money, your success off of money or not, um, I don't necessarily think that's a measure of success. However, those are the, just the type of people that I look up to. And I didn't really understand this until my first failure really came into play. And I f- want to include this in here because I think it's a really important topic to talk about. A lot of the times we're scared of failure, we're scared of rejection. I am a huge person who, a huge person, I am a person who is used to be, I think, deathly afraid of failing and getting rejected. And I think a little of that fear kind of still comes in, especially with rejection. But failure is a part of the process, and I'm going to explain to you why. So in high school, I started this t-shirt business um, because I thought it was a cute, great idea. You know, I was online school at that point. I told my mom that I wanted to do something and be successful and create my own business and, you know, be this boss babe, which I'm still trying to work at. But again, I think it kind of goes back to being naive and ignorant and not having a plan. I failed miserably. I still have those boxes of t-shirts at home, actually. I'm pretty sure they're still sitting in my closet. Um, And this was probably one of my biggest first failures. It was my biggest first failure because, for a multitude of reasons, one, I was really not confident with who I am as a person. And when you're not confident with who you are as a person, I don't think there's any way that you could run anything of your own because the whole time you're just going to be insecure and that's not healthy. Two, I didn't have a plan, and I didn't have a plan because I didn't want to have a plan. I didn't want my friends finding out. I thought it was kind of weird. I thought that, you know, because I'm taking this kind of other path of, like, trying to be an entrepreneur at such a young age, it was going to make me be perceived in a not cool way, which is just utterly stupid. Guys, if you're young and listening to this and you want to try something that's a little bit different from other people, please just go for it. Um... It does not make you look stupid. I think it makes you look even cooler, to be honest. But maybe I'm biased because that's what I'm doing. And this caused me to fail and fail pretty miserably. I only sold a couple t-shirts. I'm pretty sure those t-shirts were only to, like, my friends and family. And, yes, I would consider this not only a personal failure but a business failure. However, I think when you look back on it now, or not when you, but when I look back on it now, I can give you a list of reasons, like I kind of just did, of why it failed and why it is considered a failure. But taking that failure and learning from it, I think, is one of the best ways to outgrow something and grow as a person, mentally, physically, whatever. How are you supposed to know what to do if you're not going to learn to make the mistakes? Because you cannot learn and you cannot grow in any sort of way without learning to make the mistakes so you never have to make Mark also points out something very interesting here. He says, failure itself is a relative concept. And this clicks something in my brain because what we measure ourselves on, what we value ourselves on, like I was talking about earlier, is all relative to your situation and to your current reality and who you are as a person, how you grew up, why you grew up the way you did. All of that is relative to your own situation. So you cannot base or measure failure or success with the person next to you because the person next to you might, the dude sitting next to you might think that him bringing in you know, minimum wage for himself and be able to support himself in his own apartment and kind of, you know, not be the happiest person, but he at least still made it out of complete poverty is still considered a success. When you, if you were to come from a wealthy family, an educated background, blah, 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 all the 1% stuff, you're probably not going to see his success as a success. To you, that will probably be a failure. And so, Failure is a relative concept. You should not feel like a failure because your mom is disappointed in you that you didn't go to medical school. Or you should not consider yourself a failure because, you know, you're not making as much money to your best friend who went to the same college as you. 
it, failure is what you define it as, and failure is the way forward. Failure is a positive thing in my eyes. I don't think it's a negative thing at all. It's not a waste. It's not a waste of time. It's not a waste of money because those are lessons to be learned. Those are lessons to be experienced. Let's talk about accomplishing our goals. Um, I think we all have goals to some degree, whether that is to graduate college or graduate high school or just pass a class. We all have, or I should say, we all should have some sense of goals. If you want to accomplish something, Mark says, don't feel motivated or inspired, then assume you're just screwed. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not a major emotional life event occurs that you can generate enough motivation to actually get off the couch and do something. The thing about motivation is that it's not only a three-part chain, but it's an endless loop. He draws out a diagram. There's inspiration, and then motivation, and then action, and then inspiration, and then motivation, and then action, etc. He says, your actions create further emotional reactions and inspirations and move on to motivate your future actions. Taking advantage of this knowledge, we can actually reorient our mindset in the following way. Take action, then inspiration comes. After inspiration, you get motivated. If you lack the motivation to make an important change in your life, do something, anything, really, and then harness the reaction to the action as a way to begin motivating yourself. That right there right now is a key, key, key factor to accomplishing anything that you desire to accomplish. We cannot wait for motivation to come to us because motivation will always come and go. Some days you'll feel like, doing 10 things at once and other days you'll feel like just laying in your bed all day and I'm going to be completely honest I had to record this podcast in two different sessions just because I had a lot of schoolwork and meetings that I had to attend to but let me tell you guys today's a Friday and I feel lazy af okay I feel really really tired I am a little burnt out there's a lot of work and a lot of events that I've been having to attend to. And it's just been a lot of time that has been consumed. A lot of energy, a lot of mental strength, a lot of physical strength. And I don't really feel motivated to get things done today. Today's also my like good friend's birthday, so we're going out to celebrate. But all I wanted to do, and I had an 8 a.m. class this morning, was to lay in bed and sleep or just be on my phone. But guess what? Discipline over motivation, and it's important to note this because if I just did my homework whenever I felt motivated to, or if I just recorded my podcast whenever I felt motivated to, or create content when I just felt motivated to, I would never in a million years get anything done, like ever, because motivation for me only really comes after I've created a piece of content, or after I've gotten an assignment done that I can keep going and so his point here being is taking the action first just just do it just get off your butt and just do it then you will be inspired to do more and then after that you'll be motivated to do more and then it's like this healthy life cycle that causes productivity to happen And it's really important to trick our brains into thinking this way so that we are able to accomplish more and, you know, be more and have that just repeat in your life. Two last points that I really want to include in this episode is the importance of saying no. I did a whole episode on people pleasing, and this is really, really important, especially for a person like me. I like to say yes to everything. I like to say yes to every event. I like to say yes to every hangout. And putting up those boundaries is very, very difficult. I think for a couple of reasons, I don't want to disappoint people and I don't want to make it seem like I'm not available and I'm trying to be exclusive or I only spend my time doing this. At the end of the day, I'm not able to accomplish anything if I spread myself too thin. And this is something that I learned recently, but it's okay to say no. There is actually nothing wrong with saying no. It's okay if you want to just have a chill night in and eat popcorn. Mark ties saying no to freedom, which is a concept that I've never really heard before. 
he talks about how he used to be kind of like a playboy and just do whatever whenever he wanted and have all this freedom for himself. But then he goes into freedom grants the opportunity for greater meaning. But by itself, there is nothing actually necessarily meaningful about it. Ultimately, the only way to achieve meaning and a sense of importance in one's life is through rejection of alternatives, a narrowing of freedom, a choice of commitment to one place, one belief, or, he says, gulp, one person. This realization came to me slowly over the course of my years of traveling. As with most excesses in your life, you have to drown yourself and to realize that they don't make you happy. Such was traveling with me. As I drowned in my 53rd, 54th, 55th country, I began to understand that while for all of my experience were exciting and great, few of them would have been lasting significance. A few. A few small pool for him were significant to his existence in life. Spreading yourself too thin and making it seem like you can do a gazillion different things at once, which is something I highly struggle with is, you know, I always want to be on my A-game. I always want to be on my A-game for 10 different people at once. You physically, emotionally, and mentally cannot handle that. Sorry if you can hear my bracelets clanking together. I just got passionate and started using my hands. But it is draining, it's exhausting, and it's not, it doesn't, mean anything at the end of the day because you have no focus you have no goal oriented narrowed tunnel vision for what you really want to do instead of you're just kind of bouncing around everywhere feeling a little numb because you can't figure out what you want to do because you can't make priorities in your life and saying no and you know rejecting some outside opportunities creates the, those priorities and again comes back to creating those values what is a priority to you and why? Why are you saying no to this? Is it because you want to work on another project or you want to attend another birthday party because at the end of the day, those are your priorities. We don't owe anyone anything unless a person has helped you in return. Unless a person has helped you and you want to return the favor, I think that's fine. But having respect and, you know, Sometimes people are not going to understand your priorities, and that is also okay. That is also a sign for that person to maybe not be in your life as much because that's not supportive and that's not healthy, and we don't want that. I think once I started putting up my boundaries um, emotionally with different people in my life, putting up boundaries with the events that I was attending, I genuinely felt very happy and a lot happier than I usually am. I wouldn't really consider myself a depressed person, but I think there are some times where I just felt really numb because I was just doing too much at all at one time and it all kind of felt meaningless. But the moment I was able to kind of just put my values in front of me and my morals and what I want for myself and you know tell people no that is the moment where I felt honestly empowered because I was able to stand up for myself I wasn't getting pushed around I also understood that this is so much better I I feel great and I feel amazing and that is one of the most important things you want to live and you want to live well and you want to have a good quality of life and you want to feel happy Obviously, no one's going to feel happy 24-7, but saying no is okay, and it's a positive thing. Saying yes to every single thing is too much, too much for anybody. Mark also expands on this idea, and he says, rejection makes your life better. We need to reject something, otherwise we stand for nothing. If nothing is better or more desirable than anything else, then we're empty and our life is meaningless. We are without values and therefore our life without any purpose. Boom. Last chapter that he leaves off with is um, chapter 9. And then you die. Seek the truth for yourself and I will meet you there. 
that was the last thing Josh ever said to me. He said it ironically attempting to sound deep while simultaneously making fun of people who attend to sound deep. Attend. Attempt to sound deep. He was drunk and high, and he was a good friend. By the way, this is Mark's book that I'm reading you. This is a story that I feel like I really, really had to share because it just was so deep. The most transformative moment of my life occurred when I was 19 years old. My friend Josh had taken me to a party on the lake of north of Dallas, Texas. There were condos on a hill, and below the hill was a pool, and below the pool was a cliff overlooking the lake. It was a small cliff, maybe 30 feet high, certainly high enough to give you a second thought about jumping, but low enough that with the right combination of alcohol and peer pressure, that second thought could easily vanish. Shortly after arriving to the party, Josh and I sat in the pool together, drinking beers and talking as young angsty males do. We talked about drinking and the bands and girls and all the cool stuff Josh had done that summer since dropping out of music school. We talked about playing in a band together and moving to New York City, an impossible dream at that time. We were just kids. Is it okay to jump off that, I asked for a while, nodding towards the cliff over the lake. Yeah, Josh said. People do it all the time here. Are you going to do it? He shrugged. Maybe. We'll see. Later in the evening, Josh and I separated. I had become distracted by a pretty Asian girl who liked video games, which to me as a teenage nerd was akin to winning the lottery. She had no interest in me, but she was friendly and happy to let me talk, so I talked. After a few beers, I gathered enough courage to ask her to go up the house with me to get some food. She said, sure. As we walked up the hill, we bumped into Josh coming down the hill. I asked him if he wanted food, but he declined. I asked him where I could find him later on. He said and smiled, seek the truth for yourself and I will meet you there. I nodded and made a serious face. Okay, I'll see you there, I replied, as if everyone knew exactly where the truth was and how to get it. Josh laughed and walked down the hill towards the cliff. I laughed and continued up the hill towards the house. I don't remember how long I was in the house. I just remember that when the little girl, when the little girl, I added the little, sorry. When the girl and I came out again, everyone was gone and there were sirens. The pool was empty. People were running down the hill toward the shoreline below the cliff. There were others already down by the water. I could make out a couple guys swimming around. It was dark and hard to see. The music droned on, but nobody listened. Still not putting two to two together, I hurried down to the shoreline, gnawing at my sandwich, curious as to what everyone was looking at. Halfway down, the pretty Asian girl said to me, I think something terrible has happened. When I got to the bottom of the hill, I asked someone where Josh was. No one looked at me or acknowledged me. Everyone stared at the water. I asked again, and a girl started crying uncontrollably. That is when I put two and two together. It took scuba divers three hours to find Josh's body at the bottom of the lake. The autopsy would later say that his legs had cramped up due to dehydration from the alcohol as well as the impact of the jump from the cliff. It was dark out when he went in, the water layered on the night, black on black. No one could see where his screams were for help. Sorry, no one could see where the screams for help were coming from, just the splashes, just the sounds. His parents later told me that he was a terrible swimmer. I had no idea. It took me 12 hours to let myself cry. I was in the car driving back home to Austin the next morning. I called my dad and I told him that I was still near Dallas and that I was going to miss work. He asked, why? What happened? Is everything all right? And that is when it all came out. The waterworks, the wails, the screams, and the snot. I pulled the car over to the side of the road and clutched my phone and cried the way a little boy cries to his father. I went into a deep depression that summer. I thought I'd been depressed before, but this is a whole new level of meaninglessness. Sadness so deep that it physically hurt. People would come by and try to cheer me up, and I would sit there and hear them say all the right things, do all the right things, and I would tell them thank you and how nice of them it was for them to come over. And I would fake a smile and lie and say everything was getting better. But underneath, I felt nothing. I dreamed about Josh for a few months after that, dreams where he and I have, would have full-blown conversations about life and death, as well as random pointless things. Up until that point in my life, I had been pretty middle, typical middle-class stoner kid, lazy, irresponsible, socially anxious, and deeply insecure. Josh, in many ways, had been a person I looked up to. He was older, more confident, more experienced, and more accepting of and open to the world around him. In one of my last dreams, Josh and I were sitting in a jacuzzi with him. Yeah, I know, weird. And I said something like, I'm really sorry you died. He laughed. 
I don't remember exactly what his words were, but he said something like, why do you care that I'm dead when you're still so afraid to live? I woke up crying. It was sitting on my mom's couch that summer, staring into so-called abyss, seeing the endless and incomprehensible nothingness where Josh's friendship used to be. When I came to the starting realization that if there really is no reason to do anything, then there is also no reason to not do anything. And in that face, the inevitably death, there is no reason to ever give into one's fear of embarrassment or shame, since it's all bunch of nothing anyway. And by that, spending the majority of my li short life avoiding... Sorry, guys. It's a lot of reading. And that by spending the majority of my short life avoiding what was painful and uncomfortable, I had essentially been avoiding being alive at all. That summer, I gave up the weed and the cigarettes and the video games. I gave up my silly rock star fantasies and dropped out of music school and signed up for college courses. I started going to the gym and lost a bunch of weight. I made new friends. I got my first girlfriend. For the first time in my life, I actually studied for classes, gaining me the starting realization that I can make good grades if I only gave a shit. The next summer, I challenged myself to read 50 nonfiction books in 50 days and then did it. The following year, I transferred to an excellent university on the other side of the country where I excelled for the first time, both academically and socially. Josh's death marks the clearest before-after point I can identify in my life. Pre-tragedy, I was inhibited, unambitious, forever obsessed, and confined by what I imagined the world might be thinking of me. Post-tragedy, I morphed into a new person, responsible, curious, hardworking, I still had my insecurities and baggage, as we always do, but now I gave a fuck about something more important than my insecurities and baggage, and that made all the difference. Oddly, it was someone else's death that gave me the permission to finally live, and perhaps the worst moment of my life was also the most transformable. Transformational. Transformative. Guys, what am I saying? Transformational. Death scares us, and because it scares us, we avoid thinking about it, talking about it, sometimes even acknowledging it, even when it's happening to us. Yet, in a bizarre backwards way, death is the light by which the shadow of all life's meaning is measured. Without death, everything would feel inconsequential, all experience arbitrary, our metrics and values suddenly zero. Whoa. That is the story that I want to finish off with because I will not share this person's story because I'm just going to protect, sorry, different story, not this one, um, privacy. However, I think a lot of the times in our lives, we will have a, we may or may not have a moment like this. And if we don't have a moment like this, hopefully not too sad like this, we can take it away from Mark Mance's experience as his friend unfortunately passed away. It really hit me when he talked about how his friend in his dream said, why do you care that I'm dead when you're still so afraid to live? A lot of the times we hide behind this shield that we have ourselves, a guard, before we actually want to do something because you're scared of the way it's going to make you look, scared of other people's perceptions, judgments, opinions, their values, their metrics, their reality, instead of focusing all of that onto you. And this is a very, very harmful way of living because when I used to do this and when I used to basically value my measure of success, happiness, worth on other people's validation, it makes you feel nothing. It makes you feel worthless 24-7 because to other people around you, you may never be enough. And if you are not secure with yourself and you're not able to bring those metrics and values to your own and make it your own and base your value of happiness, base your value of success the way that you want to and start doing the things that you actually want to do instead of just existing, we will never, ever, ever feel complete. And we will never, ever feel good about ourselves if we are going to hide behind the shield. We cannot be afraid to live 
we are not here to just exist. We're here to live and live at our best lives. Whatever that pertains to you and whatever that means for you, however you want to do that, we have to stop being afraid to just do the things that we want to do. And I will never stop saying this because this is such a struggle that I had personally and I see a lot of other people in my life have. We cannot be afraid to live out the things that we want to do based off other people's values. We just can't. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your week or day or morning and night. I really appreciate every single one of you, like always. And I hope this book that I read and the points that I pointed out were helpful and that you could take something away from this. If anything, I really want you to take away that last point. I appreciate you again. I will never stop appreciating. Um, I will talk to you next time. Bye.